I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. I'll make you the host. Okay. You are now the host. So you are now the boss of me. <laughs> For the next 20 or so minutes, I am your yeah, boss. Yeah, which is good. I don't want to be the boss. I guess, but that doesn't mean I get any carry interest in, in your investments, but hey, I'll take it. <laughs> That's an investor. Boss just, you boss me around. This is true. This is true. Well, um, thanks so much for giving up some time today, Brad. Um, as you know, I'm putting together a documentary on better ways of work um, and trying to get some more balance in our lives in a way that doesn't leave us depressed and, and wondering what did we do with our lives other than just work. So um, I know you've had some, we may as well just jump right into it. So I know you've had yeah. some very vocal battles about uh, depression in your own life. Um, I guess first question really is what factors do you think brought you to that precipice? Because I know you've had a few battles in your 20s and your 30s most recently. At least the one I read was back in 2013. Um, what factors led up to that sort of battle with depression, the most recent one? Yeah, a series of different things. Mostly, though, um, I would categorize it as uh, driven physiologically by not really having particularly good governors on how hard uh, and intense I was going. Um yeah, it, when I think about the 2013 depressive episode, which lasted about six months, like external factors were great. Right? Mm-hmm. My marriage is great. My work is good. Um, you know, I just published a book. You know, I had lots of great investments. You know, healthy. <clears throat> but what had happened over the course of the previous year was that I completely depleted myself uh, physiologically. I ran. I ran a 50 mile race in the springtime. I just worked like crazy. I wrote a book. I traveled constantly. Uh, I ended up being in, uh, on a bike trip in the summertime. I had a near-death bike accident, really beat myself up, uh, but then spent all of September sort of returned from the trip straight to New York, where I spent a month with my wife, Amy, celebrating her birthday. She has a birthday for the entire month of September. So, you know, I get up super early, work on my book, I'd have a full day of work, and then I'd go out to dinner every night in New York with her uh, while being really beat up from this bike accident. And then in October, I ran another marathon. Like I just didn't, I just didn't give myself the recovery space. So that's sort of one underlying driver. The other, which has been long arc for me, the clinical diagnosis uh, I have is obsessive compulsive disorder. So I have you know, a, an anxiety diagnosis. I've done a lot of work. I did work in my 20s to understand OCD and did therapy and medication, like sort of work through breaking the cycle of the obsessive and compulsive dynamic. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't get rid of the anxiety disorder. It just gets rid of the underlying behavioral norm. And so I, over a long period of time, would struggle as an adult with managing my own anxiety. And when I was depleted, uh, physiologically depleted, I tip over into a depression. And I used to be very grumpy at the end of the year, November, December. And I just sort of would use this excuse of I was tired from the year. Um, I'm Jewish. I don't celebrate Christmas. So I just pretend like I'm this, you know, grinchy guy. Uh, but when I reflected on it after this depressive episode, 2013, I think I literally was having four to eight week depressive episodes at the end of every year because I was just worn out. 
And that's what triggered it coming out of the 2013 uh, depressive episode, I would say, and happy to go where you want with it, but two profound things. One was I started therapy again. I hadn't done therapy since my 20s. And this time I had a very different approach as somebody in his late 40s, sort of instead of trying to get through a crisis, um, now sort of looking at and reevaluating how I was approaching things. And I described therapy. I still do it. I describe it as going to Planet Brad for an hour a week. I pay a guy. He has to listen to me. He's my guy. And we wander around Planet Brad. That was thing one. Thing two was I had a lot of tactical behaviors that I would use over the years when I got exhausted or depressed or even just had an anxiety spike. Like I I would do things. I would stop drinking. Um, I would stop traveling. I would go to sleep earlier. Um, I'm, I've always been a big runner, but I would sort of modulate the dynamics around exercise. So I, I had a bunch of these tactics, but they were very specific tactics to dealing with the depression and the anxiety. They were not woven into the fabric of how I was living my life. And so in some ways they were episodic. Oh, okay, I'm not depressed anymore. And then I would sort of snap back into the arc of behavior that got me back to a place where I was completely worn out. Yeah. So I think Wanted to double click on that because it seems like oftentimes when people go through emotional struggles in their lives, they'll identify all sorts of things that may be the culprits of it. For example, uh, you're Jewish, so you don't celebrate Christmas. Um, or they might say, well, I'm going to meditate more. I'm going to go to exercise more. I'm going to do all these things, which definitely help to some degree without really addressing the underlying issue that brought you to that precipice in the first place. Um, so, so that's just an interesting point there. But on how you were feeling during that time, I mean, you said you were sluggish by the end of the year, exhausted. I imagine there were days where you found it difficult to get out of bed in the morning to, to go to work. Sure. So, you know, having had multiple depressive episodes over my adult life, for me, I describe it as the complete absence of joy. And so, you know, it's if you apply a color palette to it, there's not even distinction. It's just kind of everything is this muddy grayness. Um, for me, I'm a very functional depressive. So I can go do work. I can, once I get to the thing, I can be reasonably effective. And somebody might say, Oh, you know, you know, Brad seems a little off. He seems a little down, seems a little flat. I could be that kind of language. But what's required is it takes all of my emotional energy to get going. And then I can kind of go for about eight to 10 hours and then I'm done. I got nothing. So I come home and I don't want to watch TV. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to be social. I don't want to read. I love to read. I don't even, can't even really watch TV. Like I like to say it's, I lay in bed and stare at the ceiling or I sit in the bathtub. Like there's just no energy to do anything. And then, you know, when you're depressed, you don't sleep that well typically. So then, you, you know, you have this long at least I don't sleep that well, this long period till the next morning. And then it starts again. So you got to use all the energy to get up and do it again. And interestingly, the weekends are excruciating because they last fucking forever, right? So that's that's my experience with it. And in, in this 2000, with depression, in this 2013 time period, um, the path at the end was uh, in November, 
uh, I, I, after this sort of wearing myself out, um, I, I started peeing blood. So I had blood in my urine and I just ignored it. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And, you know, I'm indestructible. And then it sort of went away and then it came back again. And by the way, there were a bunch of other things in the mix. Like one of our dogs died in November. Like there was just a bunch of, of these stressors, right? So, and, and they were stressors that you sort of look at in any individual one you could kind of manage, but like the combination became overwhelming. Um, the second time that I noticed that I was having blood in my ear and I told my wife, the first time I was on the road, the second time I was home, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. She's like, what the fuck? You know, go to the hospital. I went to my doctor. My doctor sent me immediately to the emergency room. And like my, my doctor thought I had some kind of cancer. Like I wasn't aware enough or I wasn't allowing myself to acknowledge that, you know, this is not a normal, like you ate something funny uh, and, and it's going on. It turns out I had a very large kidney stone. And uh, it was large enough that there was no way it would pass. It was uh, eight, um, uh, eight millimeters. And so, you know, like, like kind of this big. And um, so it, it wasn't going to pass. So I had to have surgery. So I had surgery. Um, and uh, the surgery had about a two-week recovery time. So we went to Mexico. And in addition to just being... Uh, exhausted and now I had the surgery and I had this sort of very temporal scare. Um, I was on um, hydrocodone on oxy for about 10 days. And I didn't know this until something later. I had a depressive episode on a trip to Japan um, when I had a cold and I took Ambien for two weeks. Uh, I'm not, I don't take stuff like this. And the Ambien by about the 10th day, I tipped into a depressive episode that was profound, like really deep and all chemically induced. So, or triggered. And, you know, I did, I somehow, after the fact, two days of feeling like the worst depression I'd ever had, I somehow found myself on a website and said, if you're depressed, stop taking Ambien immediately. Within 48 hours, I felt normal. Right. So I think the, the hydrocodone had the same impact on on this combination, which is, I didn't realize at the time, but taking it post-surgery was not helpful. And then I thought it was okay. Like end of the year, we went on a trip to Mexico for a couple of weeks and then end of the year vacation, I just sort of moping around doing nothing much during Christmas. But then the first week of the year, uh, I found myself at CES and within about two hours of being in Las Vegas, I was in my hotel room with pillow over my head. Like I just couldn't couldn't cope. And I knew I was deeply depressed, right? So it's this interesting phenomena where it's not like there's a predictable set of things that lead up to it. Um, and I would say for me, a lot of it historically has been just overwhelmed. Although the medication in both cases, more specifically, this more recent one, um, I hadn't really had any depressive issues since that issue in 2013, I had some some moments that were uh, high, you know, a couple of days of, of serious anxiety, but I hadn't really had a deep fall off a cliff into a pit depressive episode. And I, I'm not a drug user. I've never been into drugs. I used to drink. I don't drink anymore. That was one of the things I stopped in 2013. Um, but one of the things that's pretty clear is the biochemistry. You know, one's biochemistry is fragile enough, at least mine is, that 
with the other inputs, jet lag, a cold, probably being tired, not sleeping well because I was sick, hence the ambient, being halfway around the world, right? Plus then the chemical change is, is a big part of that. So I've tried very hard to be very focused, even since that episode, on very much managing the input into the system um, yeah. uh, so, on, on sort of multiple dimensions. Sorry, that was a little long-winded, but there you go. No, no, that's, that's, that's okay. There's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I guess it sounds like, I mean, an analogy for this might be boiling the frog slowly. Like it was a, a culmination of a lot of things over a certain period of time that led you to to that precipice. And then yeah. the uh, chemical imbalance kicked in and, and you found yourself in the hotel room under the sheets and just not able to move. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good um, it's a good cliche or good metaphor is that yeah. when I think about my serious depressive episodes, there is a you know I can usually point to the tipping point, hmm. right? I had one in my thirties that happened, uh, and the tipping point was was nine eleven. Nine eleven was not the thing that caused the depression; it was the trigger. Two thousand and and one for me was a completely awful year because it was the collapse of the internet bubble. So I was flying all over the U.S., actually all over the, the world, because I had some stuff internationally. I was completely exhausted. Every company I was involved in was failing left and right. I thought if I could just, like, physically be there, I might, you know, like, complete fantasy of that. Um, and so I just keep kept wor- uh, wearing myself out. Uh, I was overweight. I was drinking a lot just to try to manage the stress as I traveled everywhere. Um, and, uh, I actually woke up in, uh, June of that year. And, you know, when you have a bad day and you go to sleep, you kind of think to yourself, all right, I had a shitty day. You do whatever you do at the end of the day to sort of chill. And then you're like, all right, tomorrow I'll start again. And sometime in the summer, I realized every day had been worse than the previous day. (laughs) So I sort of had this mental model of, you know what, bring it on world, like whatever, and then 9-11 happened. And I was in New York on 9-11. I, was, I took a red eye. I was in Midtown. I was never in harm's way, uh, but it was terrifying. And I was asleep when the first tower fell. So I was very disoriented from the red eye. Amy was actually heading to the airport uh, in Denver to fly to New York. We were then going to spend a few days in New York, and then it was in September, right? So fly her birthday. So fly to uh, Paris for the rest of the month. And so... Like that was the triggering event. And I had a really deep three-month depressive episode that sort of lifted at the end of the year. That was an interesting one because much of the U.S. was depressed, right? So it was one of those very deep depressive episodes where everyone was kind of screwed up for this period of time, at least in the U.S., because of this thing that had happened. So that, that triggering moment is an interesting one because for a lot of people that I talk to who are you know, high-performing entrepreneurs or high-performing something who have had a moment, you know, meaningful depressive episode, there's there's often a trigger, but that's not the thing that causes a depression. I think a lot of people get confused about that. It's the things that led up to that that was what was really the underlying thing, and there was just a thing that tipped you over the edge. Just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from Great Venture Returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? 
With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I like that distinction. Um, so we've talked about how you got to that space and it's a combination of things, but I mean, what kind of things have you done to kind of get on top of it? I know you introduced a digital Sabbath, for example, and last time I spoke to you, you said you started waking up when you wake up rather than waking up when your 5 a.m. alarm club goes off. But what other types of changes did you introduce? Yeah, so there's a bunch of things like that that are tactics. So you sort of roll through those. You gave two of them. Um, uh, I used to be the guy that got up at five o'clock every morning, no matter where I was, whatever the time zone is. Now I just wake up when I wake up. And, you know, not surprisingly, I get about eight hours of sleep every night. So if I go to sleep at eight o'clock, I wake up early. If I go to sleep at 11 o'clock, I wake up a little bit later and I'm a, pr- a pretty early to bed person. So, you know, it's it's very interesting. Once your body sort of acclimates, uh, it settles down. Interestingly, in that six month depressive period, I started doing this. and I slept about 12 hours a night for six months. So I was really exhausted. Um, uh, I stopped drinking. Um, I've, I've never really had, I never drank a lot. I didn't, there's not a lot of alcohol that I like. I grew up in a family. My parents didn't drink much. Um, so there just wasn't much around. I was a normal teenager and college kid and things like that. But as an adult, I never really got into wine. I don't like beer. I do like scotch. So, so I was kind of in this place where I would drink and, but I didn't have a good governor. So I couldn't just have one glass of wine or I couldn't just have one scotch. It's not that I got, you know, went on a bender, but if there, you go to, you know, you're an entrepreneur or you go to an event and there's bottomless, bottle, bottomless uh, glasses of wine, your wine glass keeps getting filled up and voila, I've had three or four glasses of wine. Um, so in some ways it was just easier to say, you know what, I don't drink anymore. And I'd done this a few times in my adult life for a variety of reasons mostly around fitness and health. And it, I just decided, okay, well, this is part of my fitness health, but also my mental health. I got very clear about how much caffeine I would take in. So I only have one cup of coffee, caffeinated coffee a day. It's a ritual. I have it each morning. Amy and I, in the time of COVID, have it together. And then I'll have a cup of decaf. So we have a one cup of calf, one cup of decaf, and then I'm done with coffee for the day and I drink tea. So I, there's a series of things like that that were very tactical food, health, sleep type of stuff. I started a couple of years ago, I started meditating first thing in the morning. And now I have, uh, it's built in. It, I wake up, I, br- I, I brush my teeth, I pee, I meditate for 20 minutes. I'm a marathon runner. So I do a, I go through different phases. Sometimes I do silent meditation, but of late, because my running has increased a lot, I do a movement meditation that's really stretching, but with um, uh, a very particular kind of uh, um, uh, music meditation background, right? So like very, very routine to set the day, right? So it's a, it's a combination of things. So it ends up being like, you could say, well, that seems like efficient. Why don't you do your, do your stretching separately from doing your meditation? And what I found is the rule-based piece of it's not interesting to me. It's experimenting with things where the real goal is having a set of routines or rituals that become second nature um, throughout the course of modulating the dynamic. 
And that has a lot to do with work rhythms as well. So one of the things that um, uh, I would in, say in, in my current reality around work rhythms, if I don't, uh, the new metaphor that I've come up with that I've been using for a while, it's been very effective. If I don't crowd out the stuff I don't want to do, it, extend, it expands to fill the available time. And so rather than saying, I'm going to spend my time on the stuff I want, what I do is I literally just crowd out all the stuff I don't want to do. And there's a small amount of things that are in the neutral zone. Like I don't really want to do it, but whatever, it's just the overhead of being a functioning adult who works. But there's a lot of things that fit in that category where if I'm like, no, I'm not, I don't have any time to do those things because of how I've established the rest of my framing of time which by the way, for me, for many years, didn't have any gaps. So I was classic schedule, full schedule. Now I'm like, this is literally the windows where I could be scheduled. So it crowds out the stuff. Other things, the digital Sabbath you mentioned, I don't work from Friday night to Sunday morning. It's a a religious metaphor, obviously Sabbath, but it's not a religious phenomenon. But it's remarkable how easy it is to do once you commit to it. And every now and then there's something that has to happen on a Saturday, but it's once or twice a year. And the end result is, again, this rhythm of creating space, whether it's space in a day or space in a week. Amy and I do one week every 12 weeks off the grid. So we take a vacation. We don't have to go anywhere, but disconnected. I've started doing one week a month unscheduled. So, you know, I have 12 weeks this year, literally that can't be scheduled. And um, I like to joke with my assistant that that means that I have one scheduled thing every day because there is something that needs to be scheduled. That's fine. I have a rule with my assistant, just last example of a thing in the mix of all this in terms of creating space on unscheduled time, she has to decide it's important enough to then ask me if I want to do it. And then I have to decide that I want to do it. Right. So there's like a chain of things that have to happen to cause something to be in that, in that space. So like, I don't know, 75% of them, she just decides, nope, this is not important enough. And of the remaining 25, one out of 10, one out of 20, Right. By the time I get to, yeah, okay, I should probably like I need I really do need to do that. I, I, I'll I'll end by saying that all of this is in a bucket that I describe as tactical. And one of the things that I've really learned in the last year, and it's come from uh, uh come from the work I've done uh, in therapy is I get, I've gotten a lot of feedback from friends and colleagues that have said things like, to be able to figure out what you want to do, you have to stop doing what you're doing. Like, you're not really going to be able to figure out what you want to do until you stop doing what you're doing. And it's advice I give to people when they sell their company or have a company fail. I say, take some time off. Like, you know, when you sell your company and now you leave the acquirer, Don't jump into the next thing. Like give yourself six months, give yourself a month, give yourself a week, whatever. If your company fails, don't immediately start the next thing. Give yourself some space. When I reflected on my adult life, going back to my, you know, early twenties or even late teens, I have never actually had a real functional gap. Everything I've ever done overlapped the next thing I did. 
And lots of them overlapped for multiple years. And sometimes there were several layers of overlap. Even when I sold my first company, I worked for the acquirer for a couple of years, but that's when I started investing. And so for about a 18 month period, I was investing as an angel investment while being an executive for this public company that bought my company. And I learned a ton in that time period on those two things. Um, when I started doing venture investing, I was still doing angel investing. And in fact, it also overlapped still with doing consulting for the company that had bought the company that bought my company, right? So there's always these overlaps. Um, it created a change of perspective. And I think some people, I'm very, very good at dealing with ambiguity. I'm at one end of the spectrum. People at the other end of the spectrum, I think for the people at the end of the spectrum that need some certainty, it's very hard when you're in a thing to be able to define the next thing you want to do. For people who are very comfortable with ambiguity, it's actually very hard to define what you want to do next, right? So you have people who have certainty who are constantly saying, I want to do this, but they're stuck in a thing. You have people who are very comfortable with ambiguity when you say, well, well you're, you're not happy with everything you're doing. What do you want to do? Like, I don't know. And so for me, I actually go back to this notion of, of the mode of crowding out by doing things you want to do, crowding out the things you don't want to do as a way of shifting, especially in those moments where you're starting to feel like the heaviness of these things you don't want to do. And it's a different way to create the transition away from it versus a hard cut. Yeah, I quite like that. And it aligns with... Um something the philosopher Seneca said where people are frugal with uh, their, their money and they're guarding their personal property, but not so when it comes to their time, you know, but time is the one thing. Once you spend it, you can't get back. And not only that, but if you're just saying yes to everything, your day just gets filled, filled with all sorts of stuff that you're just not even that passionate about. And you don't create that mental space to recover or figure out what you really want to do. And you're just go, go, go all the time. But there's just no space there to just, be and let thoughts and ideas come to you. And the Seneca quote is so profoundly true. And the thing in our modern life, everybody, you know, so I say, right, many, many people really struggle with uh, not having enough time, right? We're mm -hmm. constantly fighting for more time or trying to cram more things in. And, you know, the pragmatic, a pragmatic stoic view is we all die. We, you know, we don't, you know, death is certain, time of death is not. That's a good cliche. Yeah. Right. So you don't actually know how much time you have in front of you. And so being, figuring out how to be judicious with your decision of how you're going to spend your time is important. But for many people, me included, it's very, very hard to say no to things when you feel obligated or you feel responsible or it's in the future and you you can do you don't have to deal with it right now. So it's like, yeah, okay, sure, I'll do that. And then it ha then you get there and you're like, why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. So sort of getting the shift again to always looking at the saying yes as giving up something of value. I'm delighted to do this interview with you based on the books you've written in the past, the book you've written in the past and the framing of what you're trying to do and the way you approach this project. And now I'm like, yeah, that's I'm game to spend some time, you know, doing that against the backdrop of lots of inquiries where I'm like, no, nah, sorry, but here's a person who might spend some time with you. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, speaking of time, we've gone about six minutes over the uh, original yeah, let's do, schedule. Let's, let's do five more. I've got another minutes. thing, but I was a little late to you, so let's go another five. Awesome. Appreciate it. Um, so I guess I just wanted to go off on a little bit of a tangent and talk about the startup ecosystem and the fact that with a lot of founders out there, it's, there's a tendency to prioritize their company's health over their own health. But essentially, to me, that seems like a, a false dichotomy because, hey, if you want to bring your best to your organization, then you have to take care of your emotional and physical health. And, you know, even to this day, despite the fact that, you know, there's the whole transparency movement, there's people like yourself, like Rand Fishkin, speaking up about the topic of depression, it still seems like the 60 to 80 hour sort of hustle, beat your chest, work weeks, don't show any signs of vulnerability of weakness, still seems to be from where I'm standing or, or sitting in this case, uh, the path of the course. So, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on on that sort of hustle culture and uh, how difficult it can be for some entrepreneurs to show vulnerability and weakness when so much of their identity uh, is wrapped up in being that successful entrepreneur who has to signal to their customers, to their investors, to the media that they've got their shit together? Yeah, I'd separate two things. One is is the way the person feels like they have to behave um, and how they behave act in actuality and what happens that causes them to feel they have to behave a certain way that's different than how they feel. And one of the things that I see over and over again, especially as people get older, is if there is a disconnect between how you behave, your value system, or at least how you articulate your value system and how you feel and what you need, eventually it breaks. And it can break in lots of different ways. And so getting that internal alignment becomes important. And there is no one way, right? I mean, there are definitely people who go through their whole life with uh, whatever their mental model was when they were 20 years old. And their behavior compounds based on that and they don't change their frame of reference. And, you know, we have lots of examples of people in their 60s and 70s where you'd look at and say, well, it's pretty easy from a distance to say why that person behaves that way based on what happened to them when they were 20 or less. And whether they were four, whether they were six, or whether they were eight, or whether they were 18, doesn't matter, right? And, and I'm picking 20 as an arbitrary time. I think, for me, I think people can be much more successful over the course of their life if they do the work on themselves. And I think people like, you know, Tim Ferriss has done a great job of bringing that out and a lot of high achievers who have talked about their journeys. I think if you look at, um, there's a, a, a film um, called The Weight of Gold, uh, which um, I was a contributor to. Dave Morin, uh, who was early at Facebook, uh, was uh, and have done a number of other entrepreneurial things. Was uh, also an early contributor to Jeremy Bloom, uh, you know, a great uh, skier, Olympic skier, and professional football player, and really now successful entrepreneur. Uh, was in the film, you know, Spitz. Uh, was uh, sorry, Michael Phelps was in the in the film. Mark Spence is a swimmer from my generation. Michael Phelps was the creator of the film, and he talks about his own journey with being, you know, the best swimmer in the world, better than Spitz, um, uh, who was an Olympian, also. But uh, but then had a profound depressive 
uh, episode. And, you know, that film talks about other super achievers on the Olympic stage and how they dealt with their own, you know, reality and how they grew from it or the tragedy of the other end of the spectrum. And in fact, in the film, there are two people highlighted as Olympic athletes who committed suicide and, and sort of those stories are woven into it. And you realize that success and achievement are not necessarily linked to being healthy and um, mentally healthy. And as your life changes and you have successes and failures, how you deal with those successes and failures has a big impact on your long-term mental health, which then has an impact on your future success or failure. And for people who are afraid to, unwilling, unaware of dealing with their issues and learning about themselves, where issues isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, we're just big bags of chemicals. We're each wired differently. So, you know, and we all have strengths and weaknesses. If you're not able to go deep on that or not interested or not willing, sure, I'm sure there are some people where it never had a negative impact on them, but I think it has a compounding negative impact over time, especially on people who are achievers uh, or super achievers, which then makes when there is a disruption, it makes you even more fragile or less resilient in that moment. And then because you haven't done the work, one hasn't done the work, it's even more traumatic because you feel like you have to hide it from everybody. Nobody can see your weakness. You know, this is what you are, which just creates this gigantic negative feedback loop that makes getting out of it even harder. Yeah, that's couldn't have put it better myself. And uh, I mean, speaking of Tim Ferriss, he did have Michael Phelps and Grant Hackett on his show recently. And it was really profound conversation just hearing someone like Michael Phelps, who achieved perhaps more than any other Olympian, uh, speak openly about his his battles with depression. How he, he mentioned how at one point he took off a golf shoe, like a studded golf shoe, and hit himself over the head with it. Uh, and to hear someone like that say that, uh, I think, I mean, I've been through my own struggles and to hear that, you're like, well, I don't feel so bad or, or at least I don't feel alone anymore hearing someone of his caliber open up. And I think it's, it's a wonderful thing when people like yourself, like Rand Fishkin, like Michael Phelps, like Tim Ferriss, uh, open up about their own struggles and, and what they've done. Uh, because sometimes it can be debilitating when you think you're the only one going through this, even though you know that's not right, that's not logical, but your sort of visceral feeling is that you're completely alone and no one else knows what it's like to feel this way. So, I mean, it's a great place to end, by the way, because when I was in my 20s, mid-20s, and had my first depressive episode, I was ashamed. I was a CEO of a company. I was ashamed of being depressed. I was ashamed of doing therapy. I was ashamed of the things that I were going on in my life that I thought were maybe causing me to feel depressed. I had to power through because I was CEO of my company. And so I, I, I had to make things work. I was ashamed in therapy of taking medication. So it took me a long time to even be open to the idea of taking medication. I was ashamed if anybody knew about what was going on. Right. And I was worried that I was going to feel this way for the rest of my life. And that this was what my life was going to, and that was terrifying to me because it was an awful feeling after having been in a place where I, I didn't feel awful. And oh, by the way, against the backdrop of a life that was pretty good, a CEO of a company, 
my marriage had blown up, but I had a new girlfriend. Um, I had resources. I was physically healthy. I wasn't mentally healthy, but I was physically healthy. But this feeling of I'm, I'm all alone here. Or I got to keep this facade because nobody can know that I can be struggling with this. It just makes it so much harder. And so, yeah, I think it's really powerful what you're doing too, in terms of just telling the stories and then linking it to how people think about their daily life, their daily work, their experiences, knowing, by the way, that, I mean, the cliche that life is a fatal disease is a real one, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I haven't met anybody yet that hasn't had some downs in their life. Even the people that think that their whole life has been one big up, like, nah, yeah. dig a little deeper. Oh yeah. Well, that, <laughs> that thing I suppressed a few years ago, yeah, that's, or that thing I refused to talk about or even acknowledge to myself because I don't want to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, that's a beautiful place to end this conversation, Brad. I um, really want to thank you for, for your generosity with your time today and um, also your vulnerability. I think it's 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 just great to see uh, more people open up about these things and you've been doing it for a very long time now. So um, Godspeed and uh, hopefully we will uh, touch base again some point in the future. Be safe. Thanks. Hi, that's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.